You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, church. How are you? Wonderful. Excellent. Hello, Corby. Okay, good to see all of you. If uh, I have not had the privilege of meeting you, uh, welcome. My name is Brady Goodwin. I have the honor of serving as one of the pastors here at Northway and uh, the privilege of opening up the scriptures with you this morning. And uh, we are going to be looking at a very foundational, significant passage of scripture as we continue our Genesis series. And that is Genesis 1, verses 26 through 31. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles there. Genesis 1, uh, verses 26 through 31. I think we're still on page one of the Bible. Uh, We might get to page two today. But uh, we are week three of this Genesis series. Last, uh, last week, we looked at Genesis 1, 2 through 25, the week before Genesis 1, 1. And today, we're looking at an essential, important question uh, about the image of God, what it means to be a human being. Uh, I'd love to read this passage for us and uh, pray for us, and we'll jump in. Genesis 1, 26 through 31, God's Word says this, Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and the opportunity to open your word and to hear you speak. We pray that as we look at this passage of scripture, that you would help us to see the incredible beauty and distinction and dignity with which you have created human beings, your image bearers. That even from the beginning of the story of redemption, we see the intricacy, the detail, the love, the consideration that you have demonstrated in creating us and how, if we take a step back and think about the whole of redemptive history and the work of Jesus, we see the ways in which you are restoring us to the very image you have created us with. We pray that as we look at this passage, that we would be strengthened amid so many other definitions of what it means to be a human that exists in our culture. You would help us to receive from you the truth 
and to be able to stand with confidence on it as we look and seek to serve you in our world for the sake of your gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so when I was growing up in the 90s, life was full of existential questions, okay? Questions like this, who am I gonna sit with at lunch? Will my parents ever let me get a chili bowl haircut? Am I ever gonna get a pair of Doc Martens? Will Zach Morris and Kelly Kapowski's love make it? Are they gonna survive? These questions really, I mean, truly, these are not made up. Like these are (laughs) the things that I was thinking about when I was in elementary school and middle school and high school in the 90s. But one question stood out above the others. And it was this, what is the meaning of life? What is its purpose? How can someone have a meaningful life? This question demanded my attention. I saw it in the movies that I watched. I saw it in the books that I read and I didn't really have an answer. I knew it was important because how a person answered this question set so many of the decisions of life that followed. What do I wanna do with my life? Where do I wanna go to college? What kind of person do I wanna be? When it comes to existential questions, however, something interesting has happened since those days. In years past, the search for life's meaning, albeit still subjective in many ways, rested on certain shared assumptions. So for me growing up in small town Texas, most if not all of the people that I interacted with shared the same basic understanding of life. Most of them even identified as Christians though the definition of what that meant may have varied from person to person, but all of us agreed that humanity existed in specific and unchangeable forms that crossed historical, cultural, and sociopolitical boundaries. That there was a universal human nature was an undisputed and agreed upon foundation on which the larger questions of life rested. But today, Such an assumption is no longer undisputed. Alongside the questions of the meaning and purpose of life, in just 30 short years, an even deeper question has arisen, though its foundations were much longer in development. A question whose answer has the power either to establish stability or chaos in a person's life and indeed even in our culture. And that question is, what does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be a person? How we answer this question informs the answers to every other significant question in our life. But today the prevailing response to the question, what does it mean to be a human being is essentially whatever I want it to mean. When it comes to the question, what is the meaning of life? Common replies are, be true to yourself. Though such sentiments have significant traction in our culture today, in the end, such answers lead to chaos. Not only is our morality and standard of ethics affected, so too are the very definitional assumptions of personhood. 
And so whether we are talking about the question of when life begins or what makes a man a man or a woman a woman, the way this question is answered determines everything else. As historian Carl Truman will put it, if we take away the idea of a universal human nature, ethics descends into the subjective emotivism that defines our present age. In other words, the way that we live becomes defined by the things we feel on the inside and nowhere else. The biblical counselor, Alistair Groves, in a recent talk that he gave on the nature of modern selfhood, echoed Truman's thoughts, as well as the final line of the book of Judges as he surveyed the effect of such destabilization on Western culture. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So for us to come to an accurate answer for these two questions, what does it mean to be a human being? What is life's purpose? This is essential. We cannot rest on subjective responses because subjectivity, when we define the answers, will devolve into chaos. If it's up to you or us, you or me, The winds of culture, waves of speculation will lead us to the very places our culture has already gone. We need instead objective, unchangeable realities that give us real purpose and meaning. This is exactly what Genesis 1, 26 through 31 provides for us. This passage shows us how God provides decisive answers to the existential questions of personhood and purpose, answers that are just as relevant today as they were 3,500 years ago when they were first received by an audience that was asking the same questions. What does it mean to be a human being? What is the purpose of my life? And so it is these questions that we're gonna talk about today. What does it mean to be a human being What is the purpose and meaning of our lives? We're gonna add to that a third question though, because we need to ask an additional question if we are to understand these first two through the lens of the gospel, which is this, how can my identity and purpose in life find its truest fulfillment amid so many other competing perspectives and narratives? Okay, are you ready? I need your buy-in here. Are you ready for this? Okay, wonderful. First question, what does it mean to be a human being? Genesis 1.26 begins with the second half of the sixth day of creation. God has created the animals that dwelled in the land, but he now turns his attention to the creation of humanity. One of the things we need to remember, Shay has talked about this a little bit already in our first two weeks in this series, is how other extra biblical accounts from this time period usually describe the creation of humanity with two common emphases. The first is that human beings merely exist to serve the lusts and whims of lesser gods, that they are not Um, the dignified creatures that we see described here in Genesis chapter one, but rather are subservient. And as a result, second, human beings in ancient Near Eastern accounts are just simply creatures that exist like the other animals and they possess no inherent dignity or value in and of themselves. So it's no surprise then that the biblical account differs. Remember, we're not talking about 
a supernatural worldview of the ancient Near East and a modern naturalistic worldview in our culture. We're talking about two supernatural perspectives to establish something very significant about who God is and what the world he created means. And so as with the other days of creation, God speaks. He speaks regarding his intentions to bring forth humanity in a way distinct from how this act was understood in its its historic culture. But he says something very interesting right out of the gate. What is it? He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. A first person plural pronoun is used, which is not the way that we normally speak. Let us do this. Um, What does this mean? Scholars have thought about this and come up with a bunch of different conclusions. One is to see this pronoun referring to the intentional, contemplative, and deliberate nature with which God has created humanity. And I think there's truth to this. Another is to see this pronoun as prefiguring early Trinitarian language, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Both of these are plausible readings, but there is another, and in my mind, more compelling way to understand this pronoun, and it has to do with what we've already said, how this account differs from others in this time period. And so we've already said that the purpose of the writing of Genesis is to establish God as the true creator and true Lord of all that is. One of the ways that his supremacy is established is by comparing who he is to other lesser gods that were worshiped during this time. This is something that is seen in the language of scripture. How is God to be viewed against other so-called gods? One example is Psalm 82.1, which says that God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Psalm 82 is not teaching that the true God somehow stands in a kind of dualistic relationship to these other beings, but that there is no comparison between the true God and any being, real or imagined, that claims divine identity. This language here in Genesis 126 of let us make is a similar construction to other Hebrew statements that have the same basic meaning as Psalm 82. So if we think about the context in which Genesis was first received, and we think about that purpose of establishing the creator God as supreme and authoritative over all that is, then it makes sense here to understand this text to declare that God alone is responsible for the creation of humanity. Unlike the other ancient Near Eastern creation accounts, human beings were not created by lesser gods. They were created by the one true God. And the understanding that they have of who they are is therefore defined by him. The very first thing that we have to know about how we answer this question, what does it mean to be a human being? Being a human being means being created by God. But that phrase that follows is what gives us the definition we're really after this morning. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. During this time in which Genesis is written, human kings were thought to exist in the image of God and only them. They in turn would set up physical images that designated boundary markers for their respective kingdoms. These images reflected of reflected the rule of the king who bore God's image. 
So to acknowledge them as legitimate was to acknowledge the legitimacy of the king that they represented. But notice what happens in Genesis 1.26. God is not creating human kings in his image. He's creating all of humanity in his image. He is giving them this same representative authority. This is different from the other creatures that are created in day six of creation because human beings, unlike those creatures, reflect the rule of the true king. Unlike this image being limited to human royalty, it is given as a gift to all people everywhere. It's remarkable. Every human being is created as a representative in the world that God created of the one who has created it. This relationship that exists has some really significant implications. And so for one, if human beings are made in God's image, they share in a unique relationship with God as part of their innate identity. Okay, let's think about this. Every person everywhere across all times and cultures has an innate relationship to God. They exist in relationship to God. Whether they acknowledge it or not, it's there because they share in God's image. The same can be said for no other creature in Genesis 1 and 2. Second, because of this relationship, if human beings are made in God's image, they possess inherent and inviolable dignity regardless of their status in society. They are precious merely because they are related to the God who has created them. This is what Psalm 8 describes when David says that God created humanity a little lower than the heavenly beings and has bestowed on them glory and honor. Such honor is theirs only in view of their being made in God's image. So the second aspect of how we answer this question, what does it mean to be a human being, is this. To be a human being is to be made by God in the image of God. And so to share in a unique relationship with him as his representatives, possessing inherent and inviolable dignity. You guys with me still so far? Okay, good. The rest of verse 26, along with verses 28 through 31, describes some of the purpose that this image bearing entails. And so I'm gonna come back and talk about that in just a moment when we tackle the second question about purpose and meaning in life. But now I wanna continue by looking at verse 27 because we see more about this question. What does it mean to be a human being? Verse 27 says this, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This verse is revolutionary for our time right now because it teaches us how physical embodiment as engendered beings is an essential part of bearing God's image. Being a human being means being made in the image of God, but it also means being made with a physical body, an engendered body, male or female. Theologians are generally gonna define the image of God in a few different ways though. Some are gonna say it's fundamentally limited to that divine human relationship. 
How human beings relate to God is what makes them distinct. And that's true. We've said as much already. Others are going to describe the calling that human beings have received to rule the earth and subdue it, which we're going to discuss later. So that's true as well. Still more will describe the relative attributes that exist in our lives, your capacity and my capacity for rational thought, for emotion, for a moral will, all of these things reflecting some of what God is like. And we can believe all of these things are true, and the above conclusions could all be made, and we could still ignore the truths of Genesis 1.27, that human beings have been made in God's image as physical beings made male and female. And so we have to ask the question, why is this statement included? Why is it here? I think it's here for at least two reasons. John Frame, in discussing the image of God, he will say that these communicable attributes human beings have received, those those capacities for cognition, affection, affection, volition, these things were given because they are part of what make fulfilling our divine purposes in life possible. We cannot image God rightly without possessing what is necessary to do so in his world. And in the same way, We cannot display God's image unless we have the physical means to do it with our bodies. It is that combination of our inner person, who we are on the inside, our outer person, together that uniquely reflect God's image. Those two things are essential and integrated. Though God does not have a body, he has chosen to give you and I one. And then the reason so is that we would be able to fulfill our calling as image bearers in this world. In our physical and spiritual existence, we stand as signposts for the king. The second reason that this phrase is here then flows from the first. As embodied beings, we fully bear God's image then only to the extent that we have been created male and female. Gender is as intrinsic to our image bearing as our physical existence. Men and women and the bodies that they have received all are precious, dignified, and divinely purposed, each bearing God's image fully as they reflect it together. So to be a human being, answering this first question means to be made by God, to be created by God. Second, to be made in his image and so share in a unique relationship with him. And third, to be created as an embodied, engendered person so that we can image him as he intends. Okay, that's our first question. Everybody's still here. I know this is a little bit more You could say academic. I hope that you see the relevance and you see some of where we're heading here um, because it does have such significant impact for us day to day. But as that question that I asked us in our introduction implied, okay, as we keep moving, that being a human being means these three things is no longer the prevailing assumption in our modern Western culture. And so, of course, we're not surprised that in a world marred by the effects of sin, including such effects on our thinking, that there are deviations in the way people perceive God's design and how they understand the nature of humanity. That's not a surprise. However, I want to help us see how two ideas in particular have become so far-reaching in their influence in our culture, even among Christians, 
that it is important for us to understand their impact so that we can see how we answer this question of what it means to be a human being really does inform the way we answer those other primary questions of existence. We need to see the way these ideas have affected us. So the first idea that has influenced our culture in this way is what's known as personhood theory. Personhood theory is the belief that who one is as a person is distinct and separated from their physical bodies. The philosophical foundations of personhood theory are not new. They've been around for a long time. This is actually a, a modern articulation of the ancient heresy of Gnosticism, that all matter was bad, that who you really were was really only defined by the spiritual. But it has coursed its way through history and shown up among many significant thinkers in the modern age. Two of those are Darwin and Descartes. Darwin, as Nancy Piercy describes in her book, Love Thy Body, Darwin denied that there was any purpose and order to the natural world. Instead, the physical world is subject to evolutionary advances that he described as blind, unconscious, and automatic processes. This means, this means that the physical world, including our bodies, has no significance when it comes to questions of personal identity or meaning because, according to Darwin, the natural world does not reveal God's will. It is, as such, free to be manipulated according to the designs of human will. Descartes added to this understanding by describing what it means to be a person as existing solely in the mind. You've heard this phrase, I think therefore I am. Descartes' understanding of the mind was central to what it meant for him to be a person. His understanding of the body was that of merely a machine that operated by natural laws but has no relationship to who a person is on the inside. So while Scripture clearly describes the physical and spiritual aspects of humanity— Unlike Darwin, Descartes, and so many other thinkers in the same history, these two attributes of personhood are always treated together as a unity. They always go together. You never see mere discussion of the separation of those two things. And in fact, any time that we think we do, it actually probably reveals the extent to which personhood theory has informed our own thinking rather than the intentions of the biblical authors themselves. And so what happens with personhood theory is that these two ideas are completely separated. People have bodies, but those bodies are distinct from and subject to the self-conceived and autonomous notions of oneself. And the effect is devastating. It leads to an almost universal devaluing of the physical body that denies Scripture's teaching on the goodness of creation in general and on the image of God and humanity as embodied beings in particular. Personhood theory is one of the key philosophical assumptions that undergirds several modern aberrations of the way the image of God is understood. Okay, let me give you three of them. First, any kind of current argument for abortion depends upon an understanding of personhood that requires certain markers of cognitive functioning and a degree of self-awareness. Because such characteristics are not visible in the womb, the fact that an unborn child possesses what's universally acknowledged as a physical human body 
is a largely irrelevant fact because in this view, in personhood theory, it is not a person's human physical existence that makes them a person. As such, to end the life of an unborn child is not really to end the life of a person, even if there is the acknowledgement that the baby in the womb possesses all of the necessary characteristics and elements that will one day miraculously turn into a human life worth protecting at all costs. A second example, it's kind of a shared example, but it's that of pornography, illicit sexual relationships, and our modern hookup culture. All of these things reflect a separation of the physical realities of sexual union that are then consumed for a person's own pleasure, and they also rely on the assumption that our physical bodies have little to do with our true identities. Otherwise, we would be unable to deny the extreme personal effect of these kinds of behaviors on our lives exemplified in passages like 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20, where Paul will say that the person who sins in such way sins against their own bodies. This doesn't have any kind of traction unless we understand that God has created our bodies as an intrinsic part of our image bearing. And so we may be able to believe that our actions can be carried out with a kind of impunity, but we know in our hearts that that is not the case. The reason why is because we are fully embodied image bearers of our creator. A third example that is probably most prominent in our current cultural moment is that of transgenderism. Here, the effect of personhood theory shows up in its fullest expression. A person's identity has no relevance at all relative to their body. A person can be one thing physically and a completely different thing emotionally or psychologically. What it means to be a man or a woman, something that Genesis 1 teaches as intrinsic to humanity and bearing God's image, is now defined subjectively according to a person's own sense of their inner being. But it's here that these ideas touch on something that represents that second influence. What is that second idea that has been so significant in permeating our culture? It's described as expressive individualism. So first we had personhood theory. Second, we have expressive individualism. If personhood theory is the philosophical foundation that most directly corresponds to how we understand the image of God in our lives, expressive individualism is the methodological outworking of such an understanding as it relates to life's purpose. It's what shows up. We have a philosophical foundation that's expressed through a manner of life. So as Carl Truman will describe in his work, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, expressive individualism is actually something that touches us all. He makes the comment that we can't look at these different perspectives about humanity and say, those people over there have it wrong because we fail to realize how significant this idea is in our own lives as well. It's there. So if you're asking, do I have a struggle with this? The answer is yes, you do. And so it's important for us to understand what this means. Expressive individualism is the heart behind ideas like the American dream. That assumption that so permeated many of our lives to say that we should be able to experience prosperity, fulfillment, and achievement. 
It is the subcurrent that informs those preferential decisions that we make about our vocations, about our church involvement, about our relationships. And it's not to say that we can't have a voice in making those decisions, but rather it is describing a way in which our desires, because they so often are based upon our own autonomy and assumed authority, how those desires play a determinative role in our decision-making and how that happens generally apart from considering how those desires either reflect or contrast God's purposes for our lives. So it's there. Whether we realize it or not, part of our task is to try to understand how it shows up. Um, So we need to take a step back here and look back at our passage because this text let me, let me back up and say this a different way. We may respond to the search for life's meaning with subjective responses. We may seek to determine our own course of life based upon a kind of subjectivity, but we need to see how this text shows us the way God has spoken with great clarity regarding our purpose as image bearers on this earth. So let's look back again at verses 26 and verses 28 through 31 to understand what this means. Verse 26, the second half of it. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. A little bit further in verse 28, this calling that we see here to have dominion is is reiterated, but it's preceded by a statement that God blessed the first humans while also giving them this charge to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth and subdue it. So these two commands, to exercise dominion and to be fruitful and multiply in an ancient context would have been the answer to this second question. What does it mean to be a human being? We've said being made in the image of God. What does it mean? What is our purpose in life? To rule the earth and subdue it and to be fruitful and multiply. And in a basic sense, these terms mean what they say to rule the earth as God's representatives and to bear children and so see the human population grow. And this is actually buttressed in verses 29 through 30 because we see this description. Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. We see the way that God provides for this calling. But if we stop there and we say, okay, sermon's over, you guys know what to do now. We will have missed something very significant about the original purpose of these words. So let's remember the setting in which these words were given. Israel, who was oppressed but now free, were just taught that they, in fact, are recipients of the divine image. And they are They are thus recipients of all of the rights that pertain to this status, relationship to God, an intrinsic and inherent dignity as embodied men and women. Now they are told what God's original created purpose was for his image bearers, along with that promise of provision, right before they themselves were to enter the land of Canaan as their promised inheritance. So in other words, like the first humans, They were given the charge to live their lives in light of the relationship that they shared with the creator God 
but also to pursue his intentions for their lives to fill this land, to populate it, to subdue it, to reflect the rule of God, all with the promise of his blessing and provision. So as we, in 2022, read a passage of Scripture like this, we want to consider some of the ways that this can be applied in our modern life. This is especially important for us on this side of the cross of Christ as we see the way this commanded is a commandment is expanded to include the spiritual stewardship of our vocations and the multiplication of the gospel in the lives of others. So there's three ways that I think this shows up. How do we fulfill this purpose in our life today as Christians? First, touching on our previous point, we may need to do a little bit of work with the way we understand the image of God in our own life. I share these things with us regarding the different ways that this understanding deviates from what God teaches because I know that these understandings touch our lives. We are struggling with the influence of a culture that says, this is what you must believe about the nature of humanity. And I wanna invite you to do some introspection about what you truly believe and whether or not it lines up and overlaps with the revelation of God's word. One way to tell if you don't line up is if you heard me describing some of the things that I was saying and some indignance rose in you to say, no, I don't like that. Now, it's not to say we can't have dialogue But I want you to understand that if our argument is with the word of God, we need to have a real conversation about the degree to which the word of God stands as an authority over the way we see the world. That's the first thing. Some of us may need to take some time and really do that to say, do I believe that what God has said about the nature of humanity is actually true? Have I been influenced in a way apart from these things? Now, in no way does this imply that we should not still have the utmost compassion and love for those who do not share this worldview. The fact remains that we are called to reflect the loving rule of God in the world, which means to demonstrate the mercy and kindness of our Savior in the way that we deal with people. It would be a violation of our understanding of the word of God and what it means to bear his image to do anything different. But that's the first place. What does it look like for us to live out this understanding in our lives? We have to reckon with the degree to which these ideas may have influenced our own minds. There's two other ways, however, that I want us to see that are more purpose-oriented and action-focused. The first of these is in our vocations. All of us, whatever we do day to day, in some way steward or will steward reflective creation gifts through our work and our vocation. The mere fact that we work as adults, some of us, I get it, been there. But even then, when I was looking for jobs, my dad would always say, your job is looking for a job. And I was like, okay. Whatever the vocation is, it has intrinsic purpose and meaning because it bears within it the opportunity to image God. 
And so we struggle often with this, whether this is the case or not. Sometimes we have fallen prey to the sway of expressive individualism, believing that everything we do must have meaning according to our own definitions of it. But we come back to Colossians 3.23, which says, whatever you do, in, in word or deed, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. No matter what our profession is, it can serve a creation purpose if it is viewed as something pursued unto Christ. What's more, if we work and labor as a Christian, this can often open significant doors for gospel ministry as we share the hope that is ours on a daily basis in our interactions in the workplace. The second example, though, is regarding our spiritual multiplication in addition to our vocation. This is connected in some ways, but it's not identical, okay? Think back to what Genesis 1.28 says. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Not all of us will find ourselves bearing children for various reasons. So we have to be able to understand this command through the lens of the New Testament, because if Jesus and Paul were both single men, then to remain single or to be unable to bear children is no sin. But instead, we are invited to see the calling of pursuing spiritual offspring through Christ, in addition to whatever physical children we may bear if we are married and should the Lord allow. This connects to ideas like what's said in Isaiah 54.1, that The children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, which is referring to the new birth that comes through faith in Christ and is seen as ultimately superior than bearing physical offspring alone. So we fulfill that function as image bearers on this side of the cross as we join in the work of gospel proclamation in the lives of others, whatever role that we may play. And so these three things help us to see our purpose as image bearers on this side of the gospel is to seek to put on the mind of Christ, to seek to live for Christ, and to live in the interests of the gospel. It's what Paul will say in Colossians 3, 1 and following, that we are to seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. But there's a problem, (laughs) There's a challenge for us. We see the influence of personhood theory. We see the influence of expressive individualism. But we often, even as Christians, still struggle with living our lives through the lens of what the philosopher Charles Taylor will call the imminent frame. That's a technical term that basically just means living as if the only thing that matters is what's right in front of us in our frame of view. This is the chief symptomatic expression of modern secular culture, and it describes being concerned with only what is right in front of us. So if you find yourself here, like I know I do often, it can help explain why our self-conceptions and desires for life so often focus on time-bound values that ultimately miss the true understanding of what it means to be a human made in God's image and imbued with divine purpose. We're living down here instead of where Paul calls us to live, where Christ is. 
And so this is where that third question comes in. We've said, what does it mean to be a human being, to be made in the image of God, to be embodied as men and women, equipped to image that, uh, to, to bear that image in our world? What is the purpose to have the mind of Christ, to live for Christ, to live in light of the gospel? How can those things, our identity and purpose, find its true fulfillment amid so many other competing perspectives? Okay, one passage of scripture to think about. Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. You don't have to turn there. It'll be on the screen. This passage helps, gives us a picture of how this is accomplished. Okay. Ephesians 4, 17 through 19 gives us a contrasting account of what's going on in the life of unbelieving people, as well as those who claim faith in Christ, but do not live in light of that profession. It says this, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. No longer walk. He's assuming that this is still a struggle. This is still something that we are not free of, that we must no longer walk. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Okay, look at the things that are being described here. Futility of their minds, which just means that the way that they see the world lacks meaning and purpose, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. That means denying that relationship that exists between us and God innately as image bearers. The hardness of heart, our unwillingness and intractability to see anything differently, calloused, giving themselves to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Not all of us are going to be all the way over here, but so many of us will see our desires playing a determinative and authoritative role in the decisions that we make in our lives. Is this then not a prime example using ancient language of the modern effects of personhood theory, expressive individualism, and life in the imminent frame? The separation of how a person sees himself, the contrast between the life of Christ that we are called to. But there is hope. What verse 20 says and following is so profound. This is what it says. That is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self. Notice this phrase, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Created after the likeness of God. Theologians will describe the effect of sin on the image of God as defaced, but not erased. The image of God has been defaced because of sin. It has been marred by its effects, but it has not been removed. The reason it has not been removed is that we can no more remove the image of, our, of God in our lives than we can stop being a human. But because of sin's effects, there needs to be a remaking of this image, which is exactly what Jesus came to do, to be remade, to put on the new self that is 
being fashioned and formed, created after the likeness of God is for us to see ourselves as God sees us and living with the purpose for which he has always intended. And so what does it mean to be a human being? It means to be created by God, to be made in his image as an embodied, engendered, and dignified person. What is the purpose of our lives? To live as unto the Lord and in light of his gospel. How can we find the truest expression of these realities through that renewal that comes by faith in Christ and because of Christ? Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help, understanding the immensity of such a question. We pray that you will help us to see your words as precious and beautiful, that they would inform the way we see our world and that they would give voice to the kind of life that you would have us call, as you have us pursue as your representatives, seeking out your calling in our lives. Help us to see in which, uh, the way in which the work of Christ is so transformative and essential for that purpose so that we would reflect his heart to the world his love, his mercy, his truth, that we would be able to follow you as you have intended and as you have redeemed through Christ. Help us to these ends, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.